Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to teach a class, write his dissertation, and then eventually to actually get a job. So this is the last episode in our series about the history of the Anthropocene. Um, and it's kind of a weird time to be talking about this because the state in which I'm living, California, is currently on fire. Uh, at my home in Oakland, it's uh, you know so smoky out that we've been stuck inside for days and the air is like acrid and hard to breathe. Everybody has headaches and is irritable. And, you know, outside of Oakland, there are entire cities that have burnt down. Um, right now, uh, at the last time I checked, I think there's 1,300 people who are unaccounted for, uh, over 70 dead. I think 12,000 structures uh, were destroyed in the fires. And now this is one of these moments where you kind of see the ghost of the Anthropocene. A person like me who's committed to the term wants to say that this is what things are going to be like, that this is the, you know, this is one of the harbingers of, of the Anthropocene affecting our daily lives. But of course, it's climate. It's, it's weird. There's always been fires. There have always been times when California communities have burnt down. There have often been periods of time when cities have been filled with smoke. When I spoke to my dad about this, he, he shrugged and kind of, you know, basically called me a lazy millennial for being concerned about the smoke. He said that back in his day, before there were uh, stricter environmental regulations in the city where he grew up, when they burnt the fields, the entire town would be filled with a pea soup smog that would make everybody cough, and they just treated it as, as normal. But it does seem that these Californian fires are new, that they're different. There's kind of a, a basic pattern that we can imagine happening. As climate change happens, as the world grows warmer, the ranges for plants and animals change. Basically, things that live in southerly latitudes start to be able to live in more northerly latitudes, and things that live in more northerly latitudes start to live in even more northerly latitudes, right? This, in part, explains the California wildfires that we're seeing right now, because the places that are burning are, you know, woodlands. And in the new, warmer, drier climate of California, woodlands don't belong there in these places where woodlands currently are. What belongs there is, you know, scrubby chaparral. And how does a woodland change to a chaparral? Well, by fire. This is one of the birth pangs of the new ecology that we're going to be seeing for the 21st century. But we're not talking about fires or disasters in this episode. It's probably a big oversight in this, in this course, in this series, that we're not talking about natural disasters. Uh, instead, we're going to be talking about urbanization and the scale of modern life. So this episode is based pretty closely on a fantastic book by the physicist Jeffrey West, called scale. And I'm going to lay out his general argument 
uh, talking about the kind of broad regularities that he sees between a bunch of different domains and what's called allometric scaling. The idea is that as things get bigger, they get bigger in really similar ways. What Jeffrey West does in his book is he puts forward an argument that was developed by him and a bunch of collaborators at the Santa Fe Institute that, you know, beyond what allometric scalings usually, you know, uh, uh, use to describe, which is biology and ecology, we can use allometric scaling to understand society. Now, West's big idea in this is that the modern world is really denoted not just by cheap energy, but by big cities, and that this has a bunch of very, very, you know, dramatic effects. So I'm going to lay out his argument and then use it to talk about some of the things that we've been wrestling with throughout this uh, uh, series. So first, I want to just talk about you know this 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 the the problem of scale with storytelling um academic twitter or historian twitter this week uh shared a interview with the new yorker uh uh, uh staff writer uh and professional historian jill lapore uh with the chronicle of higher education and it generated a lot of 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 kind of nasty backbiting because part of what jill lapore said was she made a, a a weird claim for exactly what kind of thing history was she said that big data approaches to history weren't history that that was social science that you know part of what history does is it's a it's 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 a scaling thing that we tell stories about individuals or about complex changes or about kind of gritty granularities and the other stuff the finding of broad regularities you know the mapping of trends that's not history she got a lot of pushback for that, rightly so, I think. It's, it's, it's kind of a silly form of, of gatekeeping, in my opinion. But it's important to lay that out when we get into talking about Jeffrey West's book, because West is a physicist. What he does that's interesting is that he has no illusions about the value of the granular small stories that me or any of my colleagues are working at building up in our dissertations. West wants to look at broad regularities. And even more than that, what West really wants to do is to quantify them and find, you know, mathematical patterns in them. Now, what's curious about his approach is that he finds them. He finds broad regularities where I would not expect to find them. But it leaves a lot out. So first, let's talk about what he finds. Now, First off, there's a bunch of areas in which this allometric scaling relationship is pretty uncontroversial. So let's talk about those. Um, pretty much, let's, uh, let's look at biology. In biology, there's a lot of regularities that, 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 that occur as an animal gets bigger. Let's think about mammals. So as a mammal gets bigger, it tends to live longer and it tends to have a slower heartbeat. There's a bunch of other stuff that scales as well, like uh, the, the, the density and, 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 and bigness of the bones, the width of the aorta, these all scale. Now what's curious is that it doesn't scale in a haphazard fashion. It scales pretty regularly. 
you can actually plot a graph of the size of various animals and uh, their metabolic rate, and there's not a lot of spread. It's pretty regular. Now, from this perspective, a shrew is just kind of a scaled-down donkey. A human's just kind of a scaled-up donkey. A whale's just kind of a really, really, really big donkey. And that's a little bit rough. It's a little bit inelegant, but it gives us a really useful shorthand for understanding a broad pattern in animals. And there's a bunch of different stuff, not just about the size of animals and, and, and their characteristics that, that scale allometrically, but there's a bunch of different domains in which allometric scaling obtains. Um, you can see this in ecosystems. As ecosystems get larger, a bunch of other different indices also change at really, really robust and similar rates throughout time. Now let's just run through why West thinks that this happens. So this happens because, in West's view, all the things that scale allometrically, or many of the things that scale allometrically, are conceptually the same kind of thing. They are space-filling, self-similar fractal networks that are evolved to be highly optimized. Now that's a lot. And then each one has like a pretty, you know, definite idea. So first I'm going to talk about what a fractal is, because this is really wild. One of the very interesting things that West has noticed about a bunch of allometric scaling relationships is that when you look at the coefficient of how things scale, it's usually not one-to-one. -one. It's usually not that like as a whale as a mammal gets bigger for every time that you double its size, its metabolic rate also doubles. That's not what happens. What happens is that there's an efficiency that with things like metabolic rate and life's, uh, life expectancy, that the that, that, that these indices scale either superlinearly above one or sublinearly. And this is because of efficiency gains. One of the weird things that West noticed is that these coefficients tend to cluster around factors of four. Why is that? It's weird. So for example, uh, I believe that the metabolic rate of animals uh, scales uh, uh, sublinearly uh, with size by a factor of 0.75. Uh, I'm, don't quote me on that. I'm, 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 I'm not exactly sure about the math. I'm a historian after all. Um, but to understand that, let's look at the nature of what these things are. They are fractals. So what's a fractal? To explain, I'm going to tell a cool historical story. There was a, a, a historian or a social scientist, I don't, you know, what to, don't care about what to call him, um, in the early 20th century who had an interest in explaining what caused war. And he had an elegant um, hypothesis. And that hypothesis was that countries with a larger border would be more likely to wage war. 
And so he went to the library, got out some atlases, started to collect a bunch of data about the length of borders. When he couldn't find it, he'd get out a, a ruler and measure it himself. And what he found was weird. What he found was that in different atlases, the length of borders of different countries were measured differently. And furthermore, what he found was what when he measured the length of borders himself from different maps, he would get different measurements from the same atlas. This was weird. Why? Why is that? It is because borders and coastlines are fractals. You know this intuitively. Imagine, say, the coast of California zoomed out you know, from your Google Maps, it zoomed out real big. And if you measure it, you kind of just have a big straight line. But then zoom in a little bit more. You might start to see a bunch of curves, small curves in that coastline that you can then measure. And then the line is no longer straight. It's a little bit wobbly. Then zoom in further and further and further. Let's zoom into, say, street view. Like, let's imagine that you're walking along the coastline. Well, if you're walking along the coastline, you'll notice that that is not a straight line. That is actually quite crinkled and, you know, uh, squiggly. At some points, there might be bays and double backs and, like, weird serpentine lines. That is the fractal nature of a coastline. And what that means is that at different levels of, of zooming, you get different lengths of the coastline because of the coastline's fractal properties, okay? And fractals occur all throughout nature because they're highly efficient, our lungs, our circulatory system, a lot of the stuff that, 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 that's happening inside of us, the neurons in our brain are fractal networks because they fill space really, really efficiently. And here's the weird bit. And this is why we always get, you know, or, or tend to get uh, uh, coefficients of like some sort of quarter power when we're dealing with fractals. It is because fractals get an extra dimension because of their crinkliness. I'm gonna say that again. Fractals act like they are an extra dimension bigger. A fractal line acts like a solid. A fractal solid acts like a fourth dimensional thing. That's weird. That's why when we're talking about fractal solids like our lungs or like cities or whatever, these things that have allometric scaling relationships, we get a factor of four because they act like fourth dimensional solids, right? Now, here's the big intervention. This is all cool. I mean, if you're a biologist, this is probably, you know, just your bread and butter basic insight. But this is what makes Jeffrey West's book interesting. It's one thing to say that colonies of mold or circulatory systems or even like the networks of, of, of neurons in our brains or, you know, it's one thing to say that those are all the same kind of things, self-similar, space-filling, fractal networks. But West wants to say that there is a lot more that display this kind of allometric scaling. Society for West is a self-similar space-filling fractal network. Us. Humanity. What we're dealing with for West when we talk about humanity is not individuals. What we're dealing with is the emergent properties of something much bigger, a fractal network. 
When we talk about history, when we talk about what's going on in the world, and we focus on the individuals like we do in history, when we focus on what's going on in people's heads, that's not really accurate. Because we're talking about, when we talk about society, emergent properties that happen when we have this big complex system that you cannot derive from just looking at the individual players. So that's a big change in how we're supposed to view who we are and what we do. And Frankly, it's a little bit troubling. It wipes away a lot of distinctiveness of what we think we are. From this perspective, from West's perspective, a city, he loves cities, is just kind of a scaled up or down version of different cities in that society. San Francisco, for all of its particularity, for all of its history, I always describe it as a gold rush city because it's always been pushed by the gold rush. It's always marked by boom and bust cycles. It's always marked by, you know, rich people getting rich from stocks. But San Francisco in Westview is not unique. It's just a roughly scaled down version of New York City. And Atlanta is a scaled down version of San Francisco. That all of these cities are just kind of roughly the same as one another based on their size. That's one thing that's disturbing about it. We don't want that to be true. When we look at the societies that we have experience with, we say that Chicago feels differently from New York, that New York feels differently from San Francisco. People from Chicago like to eat, you know, fatty foods and are highly segregated, whereas people in San Francisco have, you know, are callous to homelessness and wear all birds and are less fashionable. But for West, all that doesn't matter. The second thing that's disturbing about it is that the individuals are wiped away. A lot of what history has been trying to do, especially cultural history, of recapturing what it felt like to be in the past for, for West doesn't matter. Because what matters, when we talk about society at least, are the emergent properties of these self-similar space-filling fractal networks. And, you know, definitionally, you know, the, emer the emergent properties of a complex system cannot be derived by just looking at the constituent parts of that complex system. But West has data on this. He has a bunch of very convincing graphs that show that there's actually, just in the same way that there are allometric scaling relationships for organisms, that there are allometric scaling relationships for cities. As cities get bigger, it costs less to provision infrastructure. In the same way that as organisms get bigger, it costs less to provision their basic goods. Their, their metabolic rate goes up at a, a more efficient rate. So as cities get bigger, you get more gas stations. But this scales at about a 0.85 uh, uh, rate. So it means that there's about a 15% savings as, as, as a city grows. For every 100% that you grow a city, its infrastructure only goes 85%. That can be a lot. That builds up a lot. So infrastructure like gas stations, the length of uh, 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 plumbing in a city, uh, uh, the length of roads, all these scale sublinearly. They, they get more efficient as you scale up. And the other thing is, is that what we might call socioeconomic properties also scale at very similar robust 
rates, the number of patents in a society, the number of professionals, the number of different kinds of restaurants all scale, and they scale super linearly at about 1.15. So every time that you increase the size of a city 100%, you increase these socioeconomic effects 115%. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more savings as you scale up. And the interesting thing here is that the savings on infrastructure seem to be reflected in the bonuses to socioeconomic effects. What does this mean? This means that in bigger cities, people are more efficient. They have more connections. They are more creative. They are more wild. They're more you know, uh, 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 different. They're, they're, they're able to be more economically vibrant. They do things cheaper. They live cheaper. It costs less to provision each person individually. And furthermore, that this effect is really regular. And this effect also pushes West to see a new way of looking at the Anthropocene. So, for West, he argues, you know, like me, that a key moment in the Anthropocene is the development of cheap energy sources. The, 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 the spread of coal and fossil fuels changing the way that people make things. But for West, that's not really what modernity is about. That's just a basic cause. What happens is that this cheap energy allows cities to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. One of the key parts of the Anthropocene is the domination of cities. So let's just take a couple of moments, right? Like, the, let's take the United States. In 1500, about 0.2% of people who lived in what would later become the U.S. lived in cities. Uh, by 1700, maybe 2% of people lived in cities. 1800, that's 6%. 1900, about 40%. 40% of people live in cities. Right now, the global average, 50% of people live in cities. You get to 1950, the beginning of the Great Acceleration, 65% of people live in cities. And today, over 80% of Americans live in cities. And this happens over and over and over again throughout the world, that people, more and more people, live in cities. In Western Europe, about a you know, quarter uh, of all people live in cities. Uh, as for, at least in 2000. Um, in Russia, it's about 70%. South America, 77%. Oceania, 80%. That's mostly Australia. So we're becoming an urban species increasingly. And for West, that explains the speed of modernity. Because when people move in cities, they get all of these wonderful socioeconomic benefits. They're able to be more creative. They're able to do more things. They're able to get more educated. They even walk faster. And the speed of life in the cities, you know, quickens, hastens. And this is the key thing in modernity. This is why we're able to, to, to keep on outrunning things, to keep on inventing and making new ideas and kind of chasing our own tails because cities and these massive cities that we're now living in have become more and more and more efficient. 
But this relates to a big problem, because if you look at any of the graphs of the Anthropocene, you might notice that they all share a kind of shape. Uh, this is you know, made fun of as a hockey stick graph. You have like a long period of stability and then poof, it all just like jumps up. You look at you know, energy usage, global population, CO2 emissions, they all share a very similar kind of hockey stick graph. Now physicists or mathemat mathematicians, they might call this exponential growth. Exponential uh, growth is defined as a growth where the actual rate of growth increases at a particular, like, it, it I don't know exactly how to describe it, but, but the rate of growth increases. Not only is something growing at a steady state, but the rate of growth increases as, 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 as time goes on. And economists and, you know, maybe some optimistic historians will look at this exponential growth and say that the modern world is good. We keep on getting more and more good things and it's never ever going to stop. But a physicist might see it differently. Um, West quotes Kenneth Boulding, who says, quote, anyone who believes exponential growth can go on forever in a finite world is either a madman or an economist. So, when you look at, at graphs of, 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 of bacteria, say, who get into exponential growth cycles, what happens is they always crash. They reach the limits of the natural resources that they are growing off of. And that's another view of the history of the Anthropocene. We're in, since it, you know maybe 1945, a period of exponential massive continued growth. And everything from biology and physics suggests that we're going to hit a wall. Now, West and his collaborators suggest that something that's happening with modernity is that because of the really incredibly sped up, uh, you know, socioeconomic creativity, that what cities are doing and what societies are doing is that they're resetting their growth curves again and again and again by discovering new kinds of industries that, you know, Cold, coal time is replaced by petrol time. Petrol time is replaced by computer time. Computer time is replaced by internet time. And that each one of these shifts is kind of resetting the growth curve, allowing us another burst of exponential growth. But the problem with that is that each exponential growth moment has a steeper and steeper curve, requires a quicker and quicker turnaround. I think it's clear that we're not going to continue in this rate of exponential growth forever. And that's something that I think historians should attend to. We should attend to how things feel and look and seem differently in the period before the Anthropocene, before this moment of, of, of intense exponential economic growth and the period during it and perhaps the period afterwards. And throughout, I want I want to just in closing, return to this kind of problem of scale that Jill Lepore was talking about, that West is dealing with, that I've been trying to, to wrestle with throughout this course. Now, something that bothers me is that, that it's easier to, to think about particular kinds of stories. When you turn on the History Channel, everybody's always talking about World War II. I mean, it's big. It definitely matters a lot. A lot of people died. But when you crunch the numbers, it's 
it's certainly a huge moment in world history, but it's not the hugest moment, not even the hugest moment in the 20th century. More people died of Spanish flu uh, in 1918 than died in the First World War. But we don't have memorials to the Spanish flu, or we don't have many. We don't have History Channel shows about the Spanish flu, or we don't have many, because it's a different kind of story, and it's harder to get stuck in our heads. There's no bad guys or good guys. There's no, you know, Germans versus Russians versus Americans. You're not going to have a, a video game in which you can play either side of the Spanish flu because there is no sides. There is no drama about it or less drama. It's easier to get emotionally touched about the people who died in World War II and the Holocaust than it is to get emotionally touched about the same number of people who died because of bad air quality. It's harder to focus on the long-term problem of climate change that we know is happening than it is to focus on the malfeasance of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. It's a problem of making stories about long-term, distributed, weird, non-human problems that still affect humanity. If we agree with West, that society is some sort of emergent property of the interactions of individuals. It's hard to make actual stories about society. It's hard to make narratives about it. It's hard to make moral judgments about it. And there's certainly a lot of phenomena that are only viewable through this big-scale lens. Climate change is one of them. And I think you know, contra Joe Lepore, that what we need to do as historians is not to say that these big trends are not our responsibility. It's instead to bring the care and storytelling and appreciation for difference that historians do and bring them to this new scale. Because it's only at this scale that we're going to be able to answer the big political questions of the Anthropocene. It's only at this scale when we're going to be able to understand how social dynamics play out over the long term. But then, as, as I'm saying that, I, I have this inkling that there's a lot lost when we look at things from that scale. That when we look at things from that scale, we lose out on individual stories, we lose out on the sort of things what, that, that, that might have driven me or my colleagues to get into history, the, the kind of granular detail. We miss out on the inequalities, on the ways that individuals fight against their structures, on the ways that people are constrained and defined by their structures. And then I also just think that I personally have only a weak definition of what these kinds of big emergent properties of society are. I can lump them together, the stuff that West is talking about, climate change, you know, Spanish flu, these invisible big things that only become apparent when we scale up emergent properties. But that doesn't feel adequate. It still feels like I need to do work on defining what that is. And so here we are at the end of this, you know, couple month excursion into a history of the Anthropocene. And I'm left trying to 
still grapple with how we tell a big story about humans as a geological force. We can do it from a big scale. We can talk about stuff like the Columbian Exchange and the Industrial Revolution and climate change. And yet we're always kind of, at least me, I'm doubling back on myself trying to put the human back in, trying to see what's left out. And I guess that the proof is in the pudding. If you leave this series having a good idea of what the Anthropocene is, being able to feel it, being able to see it now in the way that you lead your day-to-day -day life in the same way that I am able to see it in my day-to-day -day life, then I think that this has been successful. If you haven't, and I think that there's a lot of ways in which this is unsuccessful, but if you, if you don't get that in-your-bones feeling about what the Anthropocene is, then I think that there's still work to be done about the concept in history. And that's, I guess, what's up to me in future seasons and future semesters. So, I might return for a final summing up in a, a week or two when I, I've, I've thought through some of the problems. But uh, this is probably the end of the series. Uh, thank you very, very much for listening so far. We're going to be back in the new year uh, with a new series uh, that is going to be focusing on a bunch of interviews. I'm going to be interviewing a, a, a number of historians that uh, my friends, my colleagues, people I bump into it at uh, conferences. It's it's going to be fun. Hopefully, the reason why I'm doing this is uh, to push me to network more with uh, uh, the people that I should be networking. Um, so I'm going to try to get a couple episodes in the can and get to a fairly regular uh, posting schedule. If you are a historian and want to be interviewed on the show, send me an email, drop me a line, bmackey at berkeley.edu. If you have a request of a person you think I should interview, also drop me a line. It, it might be a good excuse for me to reach out to somebody uh, and say, uh, uh, hey, I'm Brendan Mackey, renowned history podcaster. And one of my amazing listeners suggested that I interview you. That would be great. Um, and thanks, as always, goes out to everybody who has uh, tweeted about the show and uh, 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 put it on social media and shared it with their friends and listened to it on long car rides. Uh, uh, Thanksgiving's coming up, and I, I really hope that you download all the episodes for your big Thanksgiving trips. Thank you, as always, to Duncan Barton, who did our art, and Jonathan Lear, who did our music. We will be back probably in the new year. So uh, see you then. Thanks. Thanks.